Good to see you. My name is Blake. I'm the pastor here. And wondering if any of you have ever been to a Brazilian steakhouse. Now, they're a special occasion kind of meal. You need to budget. It's one of those once a year kind of things. But as you go in, they have the most amazing salad bars. They do. Skip those things. It's a lie. What they want to do is they want to get you full on salad because what happens is the meat begins to come. And you finish your meat and, and you can get more and more and more. And there's different systems depending on which one. But, you know, you raise your flag. I think they stole that from Poncho's. <laughs> raise your flag and they just keep bringing all kinds of meat, pork loin, filet, sausage, lamb, bacon wrap, chicken breast, beef ribs, pork ribs, you name it. The goodness just keeps coming and coming until you can't handle them anymore. And our passage this morning is much like a Brazilian steakhouse. The goodness will continue to come and it is heavy. Just keeps coming and coming. Remember that I said, if you were here, we've been in Romans, looked at the need for the gospel and now we're at the heart of the gospel. And I said that Romans 1, 16 and 17 is the thesis verse of Romans. It's that statement that Paul will basically expand for the rest of Romans. Well, our passage this morning, Romans 3, 21 to 26, is that unpacking and expanding of that thesis verse of 1, 16 and 17. Many say that Romans is the greatest piece of literature ever written. Many say that this paragraph is the most important paragraph in Romans. Therefore, this morning we are looking, one could argue, at the most important paragraph ever written. Martin Luther called this paragraph the chief point and very central place of this epistle letter and indeed of the whole Bible. So we're in the deep waters this morning. Let's read his, his thesis verse there in 16 and 17 to refresh our memories. He there, he said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel for it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes to the Jew first and also to the Greek for in it, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. And then he spent three chapters, if you've been here, on the sinfulness of sin. It's been heavy and hard. And we need to know it because what he's saying is that the gospel, the good news, really isn't good news until we understand the badness of the bad news. This is how he started. And that's why it's taken so long to finally get to the good news. I had only been dating Alicia for about a month and a half when I went to the jewelry store. Now, I don't recommend that. But I knew I was going to grad school in Louisville, time was short, and I knew she was bae before anyone else. So I went to the jewelry store and I knew what she wanted, something simple, elegant, princess cut on platy. He pulls it out and it looks good. And I'm thinking, I think it's the one I want. It wasn't a big chain. It was a little local jewelry. I think his name was Johnny Dang or something like that. <clears throat> and I look at it and say, you know what? That's, that's the one. And he says, well, you know, I don't have another one in stock. You may want to get it. I said, man, I'm early. I'm early here. I knew I wouldn't propose for another couple months. And then he gets out his little, little tool, his little black velvet cloth. And then he drops that ring on that cloth. Bling, bling. Transforms that, that diamond, right? The diamond shines brightest against the dark backdrop of the black velvet cloth. That's what Paul's doing here. He wants us to see 
the black. He wants us to see the depth of our depravity so that we will appreciate the glory of grace. It has been long and hard. We've had a long, dark night in Romans. Now, this morning, a new day is dawning and flooding the world with its lights. Let's look at Romans 3. And to get our context, we're in 21 to 26, but to get our context, let's read Romans 3, 9 to 26. It's page 884 if you're using our pew Bibles. Romans 3, 9. What then, are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we've already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongue to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight since through the law comes knowledge of sin. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness. Because in his divine forbearance, he passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we are in deep waters this morning, but important truths, Lord. And I pray that we would be alert. Pray for focus. I pray for understanding of these gospel glories, but even more than understanding, Lord, would you help us to experience the glories of the gospel? The truths we're going to reflect on this morning should make us all weep with joy, should make our affections kindled for our Lord. And I pray that you would do it, Lord. Let this not just be an academic exercise. Let this not just be words on a page, but these are truths that change lives. And would you do that this morning? Stir up our affections for you and what you've done for us through your son, Jesus Christ. Pray it in and through him. Amen. Just two brief reflections this morning. The righteousness of God revealed in verses 21 to 24, and then the righteousness of God upheld in 25 to 26. So first the righteousness of God revealed. Look at chapter three, verse 21. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. 
After this long, dark night, he says, but now. I like the big butts of scripture and I cannot lie. (laughs) Alicia told me not to say that. (laughs) But you should too. Remember where we've been. Chapter one, radically depraved. We suppress the truth. We worship created things rather than the creator. None seek God. None are good. All have gone astray. We're doomed. We're damned. We're hopeless. We're helpless. But now. And Paul does this all over the place. Let me just read a couple. Titus chapter three, who we were, we ourselves, we were once foolish. We were disobedient. We were led astray. We were slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of our, of God, our savior appeared, he saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. Who we were, but what God has done. Ephesians chapter two, verse one, you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work and the sons of disobedience among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, but now. Friends, where would your lives be if not for those two little words? But now. Lloyd-Jones said, there are not more wonderful words in the whole of scripture than just these two words, but now. And now here signifies a shift in God's plan, a shift in redemptive history. The new day is here. The new age is here. As he's gonna say in chapter six, we're no longer under law. We're now under grace. But now this new revelation, this new covenant that Jesus brings about is he's going to say in chapter seven, we no longer serve in the old way of the written code, verse six, chapter seven, verse six, but in the new way of the spirits, there's a new factor to be reckoned with now, but now this righteousness of God is manifested. It's revealed, but what is the righteousness of God? Well, we saw it in chapter one, it's God saving action that leads to him giving us justification, a right standing. God gives us a right standing. It's kind of tricky in English, but in in the original here, justification and righteousness are the same root. And so God's righteousness is his justifying action. It's been revealed. And he says it's been revealed apart from the law. Why? Because the law couldn't provide a right standing, right? We saw that in chapter three, verse 19 and 20. What does the law do? It just shuts mouths. It just makes the world accountable because by works of the law, no human being will be justified. We'll we'll gain that right standing that we so desperately need. It's not coming from the law. This righteousness is apart from the law. But he says, the law and the prophets, that is the Old Testament, it bore witness to it. It pointed ahead. Jesus Christ is bringing fulfillment that the Old Testament pointed forward to. We saw that in the very first verses, right? Chapter one, verse two. This gospel was promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. 
So the Old Testament pointed ahead. It's like billboards pointing us toward our destination. The Old Testament bore witness, told us that this deliverance was coming. And how is this good news? How is this righteousness for us? Look at verse 22. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction. Notice the emphasis. It's received. We gain this right standing, not by what we do, but through believing, through faith. And notice he repeats himself. Through faith for all who believe. Through faith for all who have faith. Because the tendency among the Jews in the first century and the tendency among every one of us is to lean on our own works, to lean on our own performance. And so he wants to emphasize faith and faith alone. That's why that thesis verse, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, from faith first to last. And he says, it's for all. He says, there is no distinction. He says the same thing in chapter 10, verse 12. There is no distinction. It's really important for us to understand and for the church at Rome to understand there is no difference between Jews and Gentiles anymore. If you remember the end of chapter two, being Jewish has nothing to do with externality anymore. Circumcision has nothing to do with externals anymore. It's all about the hearts. It's all about faith in Jesus Christ. Ethnicity and background doesn't matter. What matters is attaching yourself to this Messiah through faith. And why is this righteousness needed? It's there in verse 23. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All have sinned. Paul's basically summarizing what he said in the first three chapters under this little phrase. All have sinned. Every one of us is a sinner. Every one of us has sinned against God in word and thought and deed. As he's going to say in chapter 5, every human being is born in Adam. We fall short of the glory of God. The glory of God is what Adam had at creation, but lost. Humanity was to be crowned with glory and honor as we represented our Lord, but we've blown it. Adam and Eve blown it. We've blown it ever since. We lack the glory of God. Basically, we fail at being human beings. We don't live up to what we were created to be. We've failed at imaging God. We've failed at mirroring, mirroring him and mimicking him. That's why it's needed. We've all sinned. But the good news, verse 24, we are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. What a verse. Keep that poncho flag up. Some of you are already getting full. There's more goodness coming. Justified. Justified means to be declared in the rights. Declared in the rights. Forgiven. Counted righteous. It's a law court metaphor. It's a judge. Not guilty. The opposite of justification is condemnation. The judge pronounces us not guilty. He counts us righteous in Christ. Some of you may use the little shorthand, justification, justified means just as if I'd never sinned. And there's truth, that's true, it's just a half truth. Because the full teaching, as we'll see next week, it's not only just as if I had never sinned, it's true, forgiveness, that's the, the negative, but it's also just as if I had always obeyed. Not only are we forgiven of our sins, we are counted positively righteous, not because of us, because what Jesus did in our place. He lived the life we should have lived. 
just as if I had never sinned, just as if I'd always obeyed. We've been justified, a new people with a new status. Though we are sinful, we have a right standing. We have been declared in the right. Romans 8, 1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Justification's at the heart of the good news. And justification is also really what makes Christianity unique from every other religion. Every other religion basically says we are justified, we are declared in the right, we gain that right standing and that acceptance by what we do. Every other religion. You perform, you obey, you clean up your act and you will gain a right standing. Christianity doesn't teach that. Christianity teaches the opposite. It says none can obey, none are righteous. Romans 3, by works of the law, no one will be justified. And so we believe that through faith in Jesus Christ, we're counted righteous. Therefore, we work on our lives, getting better and cleaning up. That's, that's necessary. The order is all important, though. We're first declared in the right through faith in Jesus Christ. You can't earn your salvation. It's a gift to be received. There's a Swiss theologian named Emil Bruner, and he illustrates the difference between ascent and descent. And he says, the really decisive question is the direction of the movement. Every other religion teaches that we must ascend to God. We must work our way up. We must do the work. We, humanity, ascends to God. Christianity teaches the opposite. We don't ascend to anything. God descends to us. He comes to our aid. The message of Christianity is not God helps those who help themselves. The message of Christianity is that God rescue those who know themselves as helpless. God's gracious initiative, salvation comes to us, justified. And what's the source of this justification? He says we're justified by his grace. Grace, not a result of work so that no one can boast undeserved favor. It's grace. You don't earn this gift. He's going to say that very thing. In fact, flip over to chapter four, verse four. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. We don't work, it's grace. That's the source of our justification. What's the ground of our justification? It's the cross. It says we're justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Jesus, our redeemer. In the Bible, redeem means to buy back. It's a commercial term from the marketplace. It means delivery through payment of a price. And Jesus brings about the redemption. And the payment of our redemption was the shed blood of Jesus Christ. Payment of a price, the price was his blood. Redeemed, how I love to proclaim it, redeemed by the blood of the lamb. Ephesians 1, in him we have redemption through his blood. So that's the righteousness of God revealed. And now we turn to the righteousness of God upheld. Look at verse 25. Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. 
It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. When I first came to grapple with these verses, it knocked me on my back and I prayed this morning that it would do the same for the majority of y'all. Here we learn that the cross was to show God's righteousness. Here we learn the inner logic of the cross. Learn that Jesus did not only die for us, Jesus died for God. Notice it was God's initiative. He put forth his son. He put Jesus forward as a propitiation by his blood. Now that's a big word, but it's an important word. And if y'all can order drinks at Starbucks, you can expand your theological vocabulary. Here's how Wayne Grudem defines it in his systematic theology. He says a propitiation is a sacrifice that bears the wrath of God against sin and thereby turns God's wrath into favor. So propitiation is a sacrifice that absorbs the wrath of God. On the cross, Jesus turned away God's wrath from us by taking it on himself. He was our substitutes. And I just think you should know that this truth is denied by many, many, many people in the church. Even though it occurs several times in scripture, Hebrews 2 says that Jesus as priest makes propitiation for his people. 1 John 2 says Jesus is the propitiation for our sins. And yet people deny it. In fact, I think probably I would say it's safe to say most Christians today deny it. Most best-selling Christian books, most even music. Why? Why would they deny it? Well, because propitiation entails God is a God of wrath as well as a God of love. And people can no longer conceive of a God who would display wrath. People don't want a God who gets angry. They don't want a holy God. They merely want a God of love, usually not defined biblically. You know that book, really terrible book, honestly, called The Shack? The author later wrote a book of theology and it's filled with heresy and he mockingly calls this depiction of God a cosmic abuser. Here's what he says. He says, who originated the cross? We just saw God put Jesus forward in our text. But he says, who originated the cross? If God did, then we worship a cosmic abuser who in divine wisdom created a means to torture human beings in the most painful and aberrant manner. Frankly, it's often this very cruel and monstrous God that the atheist refuses to acknowledge or grant credibility in any sense. And rightly so, better no God at all than this one. Mm. Of course, atheists aren't gonna like the idea of God's wrath. Does that mean we redefine who God has revealed himself to be? No. The popular singer Gunger, probably most of you have sung their song, Beautiful Things. He mocked it as well. Listen to what he tweeted. He said, I would love to hear more artists who sing to God and fewer who include a father murdering a son in that endeavor. If you can't think of anything to sing to God other than gratitude for taking your shame away through bloodshed. Let me just read that again. If you can't think of anything to sing to God, other than gratitude for taking your shame away through bloodshed, stop singing and look around. He even called this view of God evil. 
They cannot conceive of a God who, yes, is loving, but is also holy love. And when holy love meets sin, wrath is the expression. So we can't rewrite the Bible, even though some of the truths are hard. But just in the very context of what we've seen, God's wrath is one of the main problems, right? Look with me at chapter one. Where did this section of the sinfulness of sin begin? It began in verse 18. Notice how God the Holy Spirit reveals himself right at the beginning before we get to God's love. He says in verse 18, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Flip the page to chapter two, verse five. Because of your hard and impenitent heart, you're storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath. Look at chapter three, verse five. If our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? Flip over to chapter 5. Verse 9. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. Friends, there's no getting around it. The heart of the cross is to absorb God's wrath. Jesus died to save us from the wrath of God. This isn't cosmic child abuse. This is love. And this is God's initiative out of love. He put forth his son. He initiated this sacrifice. Here's how 1 John 4 puts it. And this is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. This is not evil. This is beautiful. This is our only hope. In love, God provides what he demands. And again, how can we benefit from this sacrifice? Look at verse 25 again. Whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith, to be received by faith. This gift can be yours through faith by trusting in Jesus as Lord. Faith is entrusting yourself to the Lord. It's believing him. It's leaning your weight on him. It's having a daring confidence in the promises of God as Luther defined it. Faith is coming to the Lord with a posture that says, nothing in my hands I bring simply to your cross I cling. And it's not that faith is some kind of work or some kind of merit. Faith doesn't save us. Christ saves us through faith. It's not about the strength of your faith. It's about the strength of the one you put your faith in. It's about the strength of the object of your faith. Just think about two people getting on a plane. One is no big deal. They don't think twice about flying. Done it many times. They hop in, they start reading their book. Another person flies and they're deadly nervous. They're afraid. They are scared. They both land safely on their, si their side. Whose faith saved them? Both, right? Because it wasn't about the strength of the faith. It was about the strength of the object of their faith. In that case, the pilot. The value of faith is not found in itself. The value of faith is entirely and exclusively in its object, Jesus Christ. God justifies us not because of the worthiness of our faith, but because of the worthiness of the one we put our faith in. Look again at verse 25, there in the second half. This was to show God's righteousness 
because in his divine forbearance, he passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Here we encounter what's known as the problem of forgiveness. And it's not a problem for us. It's a problem for God if he is holy. How can a just God justify justifying us unjust people? How can a just God remain just while forgiving sinful people? Another way to ask it is how can a holy God forgive sin? That's not right. That's not just. Proverbs 17 even says that to justify the wicked is an abomination. So how can God be holy and yet just pass by sin? I mean, just think of all the sin committed before the coming of Jesus Christ. God just passed over all that sin. They weren't forgiven, at least not fully. We learned that from the book of Hebrews chapter 10. It's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. They had to do it every year, so they weren't fully forgiven. God just passed over it. How can, how can that be just? How can that be right? I mean, we get this on a human level, don't we? Say there's a, a guy who kidnaps and murders a child, and everybody knows it was him. He goes to court, and he says, you know what, judge? It was a bad day. I'm sorry. And the judge says, okay, you're forgiven, free to go. No, everything in us cries. No, justice must be served. That is unjust. You can't forgive him merely for being sorry. How much more a perfectly heavenly judge? How can he just let it go? I mean, just think about David for a moment. Kids ministry teachers, when you teach our kids about David, tell the full story. David was a murderer and a rapist. Remember the story, Nathan comes to him and God forgives him. God just forgives him. In the law, the penalty for adultery was death. So what about justice? Just forgiven, just like that? I mean, just imagine Uriah. Uriah's the guy he had killed. Imagine being Uriah's mom. Uriah was a good man. He was off at war. David should have been off at war. Uriah comes home, he won't even go in to his home because his brothers are out at the war fighting, so he sleeps outside. David has him killed. God just forgives him? Just think about Uriah's mom. You're just gonna let him go? How is that just? Aren't you holy? My son was a good man. He was a man of integrity. He was doing what he was supposed to do, and this king was lazy, and because of his own lust, my son is dead. How can you be just and just let it go? This is the problem of forgiveness. He would not be righteous if he just passed over sin. But friends, he did not just pass over sin. He did for a season. We read that here. In his patience, in his forbearance, he passed over former sins rather than punishing sin. But now he wants all to know he will punish every sin, every sin will be punished either in eternity, in judgment, or on Christ in our place. No sin is merely wiped under the rug because God is holy. 
because God is righteous. This is the reason for the cross of Christ. This is one of the reasons for the cross of Christ. He says it three times here, to demonstrate that God is righteous, to show that he takes his character seriously, to show that he takes sin seriously. He punishes all sin, either on the cross or in judgment in eternity. He's not letting sin go. He justifies sinners because He's not letting it go, but out of love, he offered his son to bear the penalty our sins deserve. You see that inner logic of the cross? How it's just as much for God as it is for us so that he could be just while justifying sinners like us. And so here we see just a beautiful portrait of the love of God and the justice of God meeting, kissing in the cross. Again, here's how Lloyd-Jones put it. He said, God was declaring publicly once and forever his eternal justice and his eternal love. Never separate them for they belong together in the character of God. The cross was to demonstrate that he is righteous. Here's how J.I. Packer puts it. He says, redeeming love and retributive justice join hands, so to speak, at Calvary. So there is no justification of sinners without first a justification of God. God satisfies his wrath by sending his son as a substitute in order to show that the passing over of previous sins was not because he didn't take sin seriously. He looked forward to the cross of Christ as an atonement for sin. Here's how John Piper summarizes these verses. He says, the death of Christ is the wisdom of God by which the love of God saves sinners from the wrath of God, all the while upholding and demonstrating the righteousness of God. So friends, this cross, this cross redeems sinners. It justifies us. It averts God's wrath. It upholds God's righteousness. Justification, redemption, propitiation, glorious words, glorious truths. Well, how do we respond to such a paragraph? If you're not a Christian, maybe today's the day. This very text led to the conversion of a guy named William Coper. William Coper is a poet, uh, wrote the famous hymn called Behind a Frowning Providence. Here's what he said after studying these very verses. He said this, he said, on reading it, I received immediate power to believe. The rays of the sun of righteousness fell on me in all their fullness. I saw the complete sufficiency of the expiation which Christ had wrought for my pardon and entire justification. In an instant, I believed and received the peace of the gospel. Maybe that could be you this morning. Maybe you were the coper this morning. Have you received the peace of the gospel? Have you received this gospel? Have you been justified or do you still bear the weight of your sin on your shoulders? Have you been redeemed or are you still awaiting liberation, still enslaved to sin? Have your sins been propitiated or do you still bear the wrath of God? Here's how Jesus Christ put it. He said, whoever believes in the son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. So friends, you can receive these benefits right where you are this morning. How? We saw it several times through faith, through faith, through faith. In fact, we saw it four times in these six verses. 
through faith in Christ for all who believe to be received by faith to the one who has faith in Jesus. You can trust Christ today. You can do it right where you are. And if you do, come tell us. If you have questions, come ask us. Next step is baptism. If you are a believer and these gospel glories are yours, the appropriate response is praise. And so let's respond in praise. Let's sing loudly. But even more than that, let's live lives of praise. He is worthy. Galatians 6, but far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Let's boast in the cross.